Bill. What? Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. Today, we're going to learn to make plutonium from common household items. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're gonna see some serious shit. Welcome to this week's episode of the Real Science Podcast. I'm the host, Josh McIntyre. So this week we've got stories about options for private astronauts to go to the International Space Station. I've got a story I want to talk about about floating cities and kind of the realizations and the history behind those. And I also want to talk about a new story where there's a possibility for everybody to be a universal blood donor through some bacterial enzymes, which is pretty cool. With that, let's get started. So how badly do you want to be a private astronaut? How badly do you want to go to the International Space Station? Personally, I would really like to go. The view sounds quite incredible. If you really want to go, though, NASA's announced that they're going to start letting private citizens go to the International Space Station as long as they pay their own way. So um, (laughs) what they've announced in the last week, and this is part of kind of the story that I was talking about last week, with this bolstering of the the private space industry in the U.S. and hopefully kind of pushing forward to that and NASA taking a back seat in regards to actually getting to places um, and also potentially running the International Space Station as well. So what they're going to start doing is they're going to start letting people get to the International Space Station, private citizens. They're going to let uh, so they're going to let two missions go up per year about with about six people each in them. So about 12 people per year could go to the International Space Station under these new rules. And they're going to charge them $35,000 a night, and you can stay up to 30 nights in the International Space Station. Um, then something else we should cover that nights in the International Space Station actually last about 45 minutes. So I assume what they mean is 30 slots of 24 hours in the International Space Station because that would kind of make more sense. Otherwise, you'd be up and back pretty quick. Um, but that being said, like I said, they're going to let about 12 people go up per year, um, for this potential thing, but you're going to have to pay not only the $35,000 per night for your stay and use of accommodation and use of facilities, basically the international space station. Um, that's just what it costs to keep someone there, but you're also going to have to pay for your own flight to get up there. Now that flight in and of itself is going to cost somewhere around $58 million dollars. Um, and there's going to be two options for you, either the redesigned Dragon capsule from SpaceX, which will be redesigned and hopefully should be approved later this year, or the Boeing Starliner. Both of those um, potential space shuttles, I guess, or transport vessels, I guess maybe is a better way to say it, um, are going to let people go up there, but they hopefully should be approved to take people um, later this year. So you might be able to go up as soon as 2020. Um, and this is only part of the story. So the biggest thing is, again, what most people picked up on is this allowing people to go up, allowing private citizens to go up. But what also needs to be pointed out about this is that if you're on that first SpaceX flight or that first Boeing Starliner flight next year, you still won't be the first private astronaut. So far, there's been about seven people that have gone up that are private astronauts, and they've all gone up on the Russian Soyuz rockets. Um, cost them about $30 million to get up there. Um, and then they didn't have to pay for a stay on the International Space Station, although that's not for lack of trying on NASA's part. 
One person who went up, Richard Garriott, uh, who's an English-American entrepreneur, said he paid his $30 million and got a two-week stay on the International Space Station back in 2008. And he called this shift towards allowing private citizens to go up uh, a seismic shift in U.S. space policy. Um, again, Garriott went up on the Soyuz rockets. Um, he paid $30 million because Russia was willing to take him. And he said NASA basically aggressively resisted his presence and other um, private astronauts resistance on the government-run facility, but the agency basically couldn't prevent them from going onto the ISS due to international agreements and conventions, so there was nothing they could do to stop them. But they did try and send several of the president um, astronauts bills basically later for staying there um, for their time on the International Space Station. It's not clear whether people paid them at all or not, but potentially they did. I have a feeling they probably didn't. There's no way for them to really enforce it. Um, but yeah, they, they did aggressively try and stop people. And so the deck was stacked very much against commercial activity in the International Space Station. Um, and that allowing this, not only private astronauts, but also commercial commercialization of the International Space Station, which I'll get to in just a second, um, Garriott says could change uh, a whole host of the way the International Space Station runs. It could also change just how kind of uh, humans interact with uh, deep space and other extended missions possibly on the ISS. So there's also a quote from Garriott that I quite liked in his interview in the New York Times said, the food is not phenomenal and personal hygiene facilities are substantially lacking. And he says that these are two areas he believes that the commercial innovation could help greatly improve on the International Space Station, which will lead me into the next part. So NASA's not only going to let private astronauts go up and basically be space tourists, um, they're also going to pursue letting more private industry work on the International Space Station. And so what this means is that they're going to allow people to, again, pay their own way, and, and they're going to give them cargo space on, on missions that they're already doing, but then they're also going to give them space on the International Space Station work, and they're also going to give basically time for the astronauts that are already up there to work on different projects that are going to be going on. So... There are some criteria that these uh, private sector companies will have to meet, um, and there's some some like need that they'll have to kind of they're going to have to put forward of why they need to work in this microgravity environment. And so, simple simple needs for stuff like that would be just um, if they're developing something for space travel in some other way or some kind of other amenity, maybe you know Richard Garriott's idea of there could be new bathrooms or new um, food potentially. Um, new ways to prepare food or, or something like that. Um, you know, things for basically space travel in some capacity. However, there's one other thing, though, that apparently that I didn't know about. Um, well, I didn't know about this, but if you are creating fiber optic cables in a microgravity environment, they yield just incredible results. And so that's one application that a company making fiber optic cables that wants to put up the money to get up to the space and then retrieve retrieve their um, their fiber optic cables back could create a facility to make fiber optic cables on the international space station and then in of itself obviously they'd be quite expensive but apparently they would be um, incredible so i don't know what they would be used for necessarily but um, potentially things talking between computers potentially um, i'm not sure exactly but either way that's the kind of stuff that they're, they're wanting to put into the commercialization of the iss Currently, NASA itself spends about three to four billion dollars a year to send astronauts up into space and um, for maintaining the International Space Station. So it is created through a joint effort with Russia. Um, 
that's been up there for, you know, whatever, 20 plus years now. Um, but it does cost NASA pays most of the bill and it obviously costs, like I said, three to $4 billion a year is a huge uh, footprint in their, um, in their budget every year to keep this all going. So what they propose is actually going to a full commercialization of the ISS in the mid 2020s. So potentially in the next five or six years, we could see NASA stepping away almost completely from the International Space Station and giving it over, giving over their portion rather to commercial companies to use for sending up astronauts, but then also maintaining part of the facility and running experiments and so forth on the facility, which would be um, a very different world than we have now and would create obviously a very different International Space Station. Um, the idea behind this, again, is to help prop up the private space industry in the U.S. to make it cheaper for people to get there because private companies can do things that federal companies just can't do. They've got restrictions. NASA has restrictions on the budget, has restrictions on kind of how they can do things and how they can move around, whereas private companies don't have those same kind of strictures with a Senate or a House approving the budget and the president having to approve the budget and make demands on them. It's just not the same. So there's a big incentive to kind of push that to a private industry that would be able to make decisions faster with just more ability to potentially pursue other plans. Also, without spending that much money on the budget, it would allow NASA to spend more money on other parts, like not developing rockets, but developing different experiments and developing ways to get buy space on rockets that are going up to get to the moon because Trump still has his plan or supposedly he does though he seems to be fighting with his own plan now on Twitter um, of putting astronauts on the moon by 2024 so we'll see how that goes um, his recent tweets suggest that maybe he doesn't want to send people to the moon anymore he just wants to send people to Mars but We'll see. NASA obviously hasn't got a new mandate, and they're probably still going to be pushing for that. So we'll see how that goes um, in the next few years. It should be interesting, nonetheless, um, with this bigger commercialization. It will hopefully start a new space race between these private companies, and we'll see if Russia takes that on as well. Um, so far, there doesn't seem to be any push there, but there are about, I think so. I think I read the other day, around 100 different startup companies in the U.S. that are all vying for portions of this kind of low earth orbit space industry and a potential push towards kind of making humans more of a spacefaring civilization potentially putting up other um, satellites or other um, space stations in different portions um, so we'll see different portions of the atmosphere that would be in geosynchronous orbits potentially around places so we'll see how that happens and see how that goes ahead um, but the next 10 years could be quite interesting for space and the space industry in itself so again quite cool quite interesting so with that i think i'll move on to the next story just now so this story is in regards to a, an article i saw in the conversation uh, magazine which is talking about the potential and kind of the history and also potential for um sea cities basically so cities that are on sea um usually need to be floating floating kind of towns and stuff like that and there's been a weird history around them for at one point they talk about how in like the 1950s and 70s there were people like Buckminster Fuller um, and the researchers in Japan who were putting forth this whole kind of an idea of like marine utopias um, and really taking advantage of all the space and I think part of that seems to be because of this the population bomb that was kind of happening and the whole kind of movement um, during the 50s and 70s and stuff like soil and green where they thought the pop human population was just going to keep growing so fast we would never be able to manage it um 
obviously that growth hasn't slowed down. We're at a much higher population now, but there's still plenty of land to grow on. So it, the, the push to grow into the sea doesn't seem to be as much of an issue. Also, it seems like a few of the places that I know that have been built, they don't last long because the one thing about the ocean is that it kind of never stops. Whereas if you build a house, you build a building, like it's, if you do a good job, it should at least stand for, you know, 20 years, relatively unscathed, you know, barring internet, you know, barring kind of natural disasters like floods and stuff like that. But even if you, your house is flooded, you can go and gut it and put it back together. If your house sinks while you're out in the ocean, it's kind of just sunk and that's it. Like there's nothing else you can really do. And so the floating cities idea is, is, is neat and it sounds kind of, you know, science fiction-y, um, it sounds interesting. There are other people pushing for it, but um, but yeah, I don't I don't know how realistic it is. Again, there was a lot of focus on it in the '60s and '70s, '50s to to the '70s and stuff like that. And they talk about in the article um, that in Vancouver in '76 there was a UN meeting called where they had the UN Declaration for Habitat One, which had a purpose to adopt a bold, meaningful, and effective human settlement policies and spatial planning strategies and to treat human settlements as an instrument and object of development. So they're really trying to push forward this whole idea of, you know, cities should be a developing thing to help people kind of move and help people kind of adapt to their surroundings, which is really interesting. And then there's, there is a focus for, you know, people who wanted to live out at sea. There are obviously, you know, causes you can make for, small island populations and stuff like that where the islands are disappearing maybe they can move on to a seafaring thing and keep their same kind of microstate that already exists um but again it's it's the the feasibility of that kind of thing that that seems far-fetched with you've got things that are like like lily pads where they're just basically giant barges that are stuck together um but the floating seas it still seems really far-fetched to me, but then they also do have talks in this article. They talk about kind of technology and types of floating structures and that most of like the big kind of lily pads, these big kind of barges basically that would be close to the shore potentially have some kind of a shore break or some kind of an, a wave break um, a little ways off the structure and could be used to actually house a lot of people. But mostly they're looked at for things for nuclear power stations um, they also talk about bridges and oil storage facilities and stadiums and stuff like that that could be built in kind of shallow coastal environments instead of deep international waters. But then the other type is these kind of very large floating structures that could be off into international waters and could actually potentially become micronations themselves. Because if you're in international waters, you're not really controlled by any other country, obviously. So you don't have the same kinds of like legislation and laws blocking you from doing certain things so i mean then in that case it really sounds more like a sci-fi kind of experiment to me or something like rapture out of like bioshock where then you've got people who have ideas about you know, you know using stem cell therapies or using potentially other things that are maybe unethical unethical treatments or unethical um, procedures to pursue science and pursue different things that maybe aren't allowed on mainland aren't allowed in most countries where they would be able to do and proceed however they want. And in those cases, those kinds of structures would probably be built on oil rigs. Um, there are already huge oil rigs that are especially like up in the North Sea and stuff like that, where they're basically small cities in and of themselves. Um, 
but they could exist out in international waters and they can have kind of any legislation, any kind of laws they want. Obviously, they'd be defenseless if somebody else came along and decided to tell them to stop doing what they're doing. So it could be quite interesting. Um, we'll see. You know, I don't, I don't really see this taking off in the near future. It says, you know, most of the time these, these kind of utopian proposals for seaborne leisure colonies or kind of city-states that would exist in international waters don't go forward because of basically commercial issues. Like, no one has the money to want to go and spend and do something like that. Um, and so nobody wants to go put forward their own their own dime to try and, and build one of these kind of seafaring states um, just to circumvent tax laws or restrictions on medical research or, or things like that. Um, there's other ways to kind of get around it. There's other countries you can go to if you've got the money to spend to buy an oil rig and turn it into a proper city. Um, you could probably spend that money in a better way, some other way. The last kind of concept that they put forward in this article as well is that places like Disneyland could maybe go and do that, where they've actually got kind of the capital to go and buy a large structure and put it in international waters, and then they could have basically ships come to it, and it would be, you know, super Disneyland off the coast, where they wouldn't have any kind of building codes or any, again, any kind of legislation or any kind of tax barriers they could charge whatever they want, basically, and it would probably be quite a high price to get out there. Again, I don't see the real utility in doing that they've got so much money they could probably do just about anything they want and it would just be so much easier and cheaper to build something on land or go buy a small state or a small island somewhere and build on that as opposed to building something out in the middle of the ocean um but it's an interesting idea and i brought it up only because i'm because i found it uh fascinating and there is a proposal called the ocean x city um that is potentially going to be going forward i guess in the next few years but we'll We'll see how that goes. Um, like I said, it, it's quite interesting nonetheless. And this Ostronex city is quite fascinating. So I'll put a link to its homepage, um, but just off its media page, I'll read you something they've got written here. The ocean is under threat from land reclamation as coastal cities struggle to cope with rapid population growth. Many simply pour sand into the ocean to create new land. Unfettered coastal urbanization is destroying millions of hectares of the ocean and marine life. Close to 50% of people in the world live in coastal areas. The rising sea and climate change are compounding the problem. 90% of the world's largest cities will be exposed to rising seas by 2050. The vast majority, majority of coastal cities will be impacted by coastal erosion and flooding, displacing millions of people while destroying homes and infrastructure. OceanX is taking bold steps towards a more resilient future as part of the UN's habitat, New Urban Agenda, Ocean X City is a version of the world's first resilient and sustainable floating community for 10,000 residents on 75 hectares. Designed as a man-made ecosystem, it is anchored in the sustainable development goals of the United Nations, channeling flows of energy, water, food, and waste to create a blueprint for a modern maritime metropolis. The city is designed to grow, transform, and adapt organically over time, evolving from neighborhoods to cities with the possibility of scaling indefinitely. So they've got a very, very um, forward-thinking plan. They've got a whole host of videos, their animations and stuff, obviously, of what they think this is basically going to look like. And what they're talking about is, I guess, creating these small neighborhoods, which would then center around uh, Central Harbor. Um, and so they've got pictures, and it's basically these big kind of, um, well, what are they? They're like octagons or hexagons. 
um, centered around the essential harbor that you can get into and so people can walk between different um, sections of it or you can get in a boat and they've got pictures of people on kayaks going around to get to different places there's no real kind of talk of what these people would do obviously people would be fishermen that would make the most sense and maybe there's people running shops and stuff like that and they've also got lots of pictures of different plants and stuff growing on and they say specifically too that the buildings wouldn't be over seven stories tall so they wouldn't get too much wind drag um, so they wouldn't be too top heavy but a seven story building on on a raft effectively is a quite a large building so it's, it's quite a huge deal and they say that by by clustering six of the neighborhoods again um, they could create larger harbors protecting the central uh, central harbor um, and villages would be as large as 12 hectares which would be able to accommodate 1600 residents so the idea is to kind of you can create a few of these but because they're modular you can make them bigger and bigger and bigger making huge metropolises and scaling for a long period of time now they don't show they've got again videos of kind of where it would be and it's obviously shown in very calm weather and all the videos and stuff like that so i wonder if it would have to be in, in a bay or something like that again close to shore um like some of the early adaption adoptions of kind of um different city uh, different kind of ocean cities and stuff like that but again it's very kind of it's a progressive idea it's it's interesting again i'll link to it so you can have a look through it yourself um yeah we'll see how it goes the the home page is just this kind of stunning image of all these different cities with parks that are not directly connected to some of the i would assume are houses or apartment buildings i guess um so maybe you jump in and swim to get to the park and go for a run i don't know um but yeah it's interesting nonetheless and, and we'll see we'll see if it takes off uh there's definitely some some people that would be interested, but it's it's going to be a lot of money and a lot of effort to put the whole thing together and then get all these people, convince a bunch of people to move out there. Um, so yeah, so so I'll move on to the next story now, which is about blood donations and converting um, blood types into universal donors. So the story starts with the the line about sixteen thousand five hundred liters being used per day in emergency surgeries um, throughout the U.S. And so using that blood, um, ideally, if you don't know what the person's blood type is, and there's times when the doctors don't have time to type for someone's blood type because it takes a few minutes, they'll just give someone type O blood. And type O blood just means that they don't have any uh, of the sugar molecules that are on the blood cells that identify the person's blood type. Remember, there's a couple different types of blood type. You can have either A type, B type, or AB or O. And O just means that you don't have the antigens on your blood cells that say it's a top blood type. Um, whereas there's the A and B or AB. Um, so what they found is they use a couple, a mix of a couple um, bacterial enzymes that are basically able to go in and strip the antigens away from the blood, from these red blood cells, effectively targeting type A or type B or type AB into type O blood cells. So then you can use any of that in any kind of donation. You don't have to check someone's um, blood type. So it potentially makes a huge deal in the amount of blood that becomes available because people with type O blood are unfortunately quite rare. And uh, as some of the comment sections are uh, talking about this article on Reddit, people with type O blood are harassed continuously to donate blood. Um, some people complained about it because they weren't able to donate blood from being pregnant or something like that. Um, but then people like myself who have type A are not quite as harassed. Um, they don't seem to care because it's one of the more common blood types around. Um, but then that makes life easy for me. If you know that I've got type A blood, there's a lot of type A blood to be given.
And so the bacteria that they use are actually human gut bacteria. And some of these microbes will latch onto the gut wall where they'll eat sugar protein combos um, called mucins um, that line your gut. And the mucins are sugar that are similar to type, type that define which ones are on red blood cells and stuff like that. And so postdoc at UBC, Peter Rothfeld collected human stool samples of isolated DNA in which theory would include genes that encode bacterial enzymes to digest mucins. On chopping up the DNA, he loaded that into different species, commonly used in labs. So he put the DNA into E. coli, um, and then tried to have the E. coli express the different bacteria, the different enzymes, to try and see if there was anything that would produce the ability to chop off these uh, these antigens on blood cells. Doing that, he eventually found two, and two of the different enzymes um, added at once, adding them to the substance. Um, Adding them into blood showed that it was actually removing the enzymes um, quite fast and quite efficiently. Um, by itself, each one didn't seem to work quite as well, but combined, they worked incredibly well. Um, and shows huge promise for potential practicality or potential utility of doing this, again, for basically adding these two. I think the idea is to eventually add these to all kind of um, blood donation, so we just strip the antigens away. There probably need to be some kind of cleaning process um, when doing that, um, so the antigens aren't just floating around the blood uh, leaving for the the person receiving the blood donation to have their immune system still attacking and still uh, going after it. But again, possibility of doing this uh, would just mean that people wouldn't have to worry about the blood type when donating, and everybody could be a type, don type O blood, um, basically for donation purposes. And that it would also free up a huge supply of, of, um, of blood that's already in storage because blood doesn't last forever, but it would, uh, but it would allow that anybody who donates blood to basically be able to take that blood and donate it to anybody else. Um, so it's just quite a neat, potentially really promising little thing, again, for emergency situations where it's quite dire when someone can need blood immediately from a car accident or something like that. So with that being said, with that cool story and the other stories I talked about today, um, I think that's all from me. Hope you liked the show. Hope you learned something new. Hope you thought it was interesting. Uh, if you like the show, head over to my website and check it out. It's scifiction.com, S-C-I-F-I-X-I-O-N. If you want to support me, um, head over to my patreon.com. My Patreon page is patreon.com slash scifiction. Uh, I've got to put up some some subscriber-only content on there, hopefully today or tomorrow. And hopefully you enjoy the show, and hopefully you want to you help me support it and help me keep doing it. Otherwise, if you want to hit me up, if you have questions or comments or stories you think I should cover, you can do that. There's a contact page on my website, or find me on Twitter on McIntyre Science. And I hope you guys like the show, and I'll talk to you guys next week.